What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because nobody cares more about your financial future than you do. Today, I'm joined by Rich Jones. He's the host of the award-winning Paychecks and Balances podcast, helping you navigate your finances and career. Check it out at paychecksandbalances.com. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for this conversation today. You bet. A little bit of a different format today. So Rich is a frequent speaker at both podcasting and personal finance events. And perhaps more impressively, he's done it all on the side. He's a true side hustler. Today, we've got 10 unconventional money rules. And these are unconventional in in my mind. I don't know if if for you as the listener, how unconventional they'll be. But we're going to run through those, have some back and forth, have some fun along the way. And I'll stick around to hear our take on all of these different money rules that you may or may not be playing by in your own life. So number one that we have, I'm going to come right out of the gate with this one that you might find surprising, and that is sometimes your job is your best side hustle. And what I mean by that is if you are a highly paid worker, if you have the ability to pick up extra shifts, if that is kind of the nature of the game for you, where you're earning maybe hundreds of dollars an hour at your day job, it might make sense to just bill more hours at that day job rather than trying to start something completely from scratch on the side. What's your take? I love that. And this may be controversial in some ways and counterintuitive for this show, but I generally believe that everybody doesn't need to be an entrepreneur. There are a lot of people who are really enjoying their careers. And I know there's a a lot of entrepreneur shaming that happens out there people calling it the rat race. But I know a lot of people and I'm experiencing this myself where I like what I'm doing by day. I'm well compensated for what I do by day. And that day job is funding my side hustle. And it ultimately works out that I can continue to do this job because it's something that I enjoy. And I know that if I perform at a higher level, I can earn more through bonuses and salary increases while also knowing that I've got this side business that I ultimately want to make a full-time thing, but the day job is the source of income for that or the or the investing income for the business is what I'll say. Yeah, a friend of mine has referred to your day job as the silent partner or the the venture capitalist that doesn't require any equity into your business. It's like, yeah, that's kind of what is providing you this runway, this startup capital. Yeah, and I think for those who are aspiring to be an entrepreneur, there's different guidance out there about whether you should have six months, 12 months of runway. But for a lot of us, we don't build that runway without the income that we're receiving from our day job. So I'm totally with you on this one. There are three traditional paths to financial independence or early retirement. One is the entrepreneurial path, this building your own business, generating your own income. The second path for many people is real estate. Like if I can build up this cash flow through rental properties or commercial properties, whatever it is, is a common path as well. And then the third path is just the paper assets path, the accelerated savings plan of live lean, invest the difference, and just let compound interest take effect. And maybe it doesn't have to take 40 years, but if your day job salary is high enough and you can live modestly, like, hey, maybe you can shortcut this if that's the ultimate goal, right? If the ultimate goal is this early retirement financial independence, maybe the job, if it's a high paying one, is the fastest way to get there. I agree, man. And I work in uh, tech in Silicon Valley and there's base salary, there's bonus, there's stock. So depending on where you work and the type of work you're you're doing, I know that's going to be different for everyone, but I do know people who are making the path or moving along on the path to financial independence and retiring early by still working their day job. I think that was one of the advantages that I had early on was like my day job wasn't paying an exorbitant amount. I think I was making around 50 grand a year at the time that I quit. And so if it was double that, triple that, quadruple that, it was like, it's the golden handcuffs thing. Like it's harder to walk away and to reach the point in your side business where that even makes sense. So that's unconventional rule number one. Sometimes your job is your best side hustle. Number two is one of yours. Why don't you tee this one up? And it's a good follow-up to number one. So sometimes the perks and benefits are worth more than the salary. And I think a lot about this in the context of salary negotiation or negotiating an offer for a day gig. I'll put it that way. 
And people may get fixated on the dollar amount. And that is important because what your salary is ultimately impacts what you'll be set up for in terms of a salary in the next role. But sometimes the benefits and the perks, for example, I work somewhere, well, previously when we were able to go into the office, things like free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, health benefits, access to gym facilities, access to financial coaching, discounts provided for educational opportunities and development, health benefits and things around childcare and even in vitro and things like that. Sometimes there are benefits that a company may offer where maybe that salary number isn't as high. And I always encourage people to negotiate and ask for more when it comes to that. But there are benefits that if they can really simplify your life and they can save you thousands of dollars in another way, then they might be worth it. They might be worth more than that salary number because of how much money you're saving on a weekly or monthly basis. And especially in the tech world, the Silicon Valley world, those non-salary perks are a huge recruiting tool. I'm curious, since quarantine, since working from home, have they bumped up the salary number as they're not like feeding everybody on campus? They have not bumped up the salary number. I would have loved it if that was the case. But what they did do is give us $1,000 to set up our home space to make it more comfortable given how long we're going to be working from home. So I was able to buy a new computer desk, which also will double as a podcast production station. I was able to buy a new laptop stand, new microphone, new chair. So they did really help us out in that way. But yeah, the food perks, that went away. And I think being out here, it's easy to take it for granted because now that I'm noticing what my food costs are per month, since I've lost that perk, I'm like, wow, this was like hundreds of dollars that I was able to save just by having access to this benefit. So no salary boost, but they are doing things to make us more comfortable. Okay. This is definitely part of the equation as you're looking at quitting your day job and moving full-time with your side hustle of like, okay, how am I going to cover the, the health insurance piece? anything else that your company may have been subsidizing for you. And it was hard, like we were just doing the math in our household, where it's like, oh, if we wanted to buy health insurance off the exchange, it'd be like minimum $1,000 a month for pretty crappy coverage. So we looked just at that net. And then we had to do the math like, oh, the healthcare that we have now isn't just free through my wife's work. She's actually paying for that you know, out of her paycheck and it's pre-tax dollars and all that. But it's like seeing that, Slightly smaller delta was helpful and be like, okay, it's not as big of a, of a straight up sticker shock. Yeah. And another thing I was thinking about, even with 401ks, and I know a lot of companies out there do matching and I've been reading that some companies are actually cutting the match right now because of the economy. And I'm glad that that hasn't been the case for us, but even what a company matches. So for example, they match, I forget the exact percentage, but essentially up to 9,500 per year which I think is the uh, max number, that can be a factor too, because that's also free money. So there are a lot of little things where you kind of got to go back and forth on crunching the numbers and see if it's something that'll make sense for you and your family, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. Yeah, that company match is, if you're not taking advantage of that today, that is probably the single best source of free money that you're going to find. It's like, you know, one for one or even a percentage up to a certain percentage of your salary. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to walk away from that. Or it's hard to justify not maxing that out. Number three on our list of unconventional money rules is that not all dollars are equal. And I was reminded of an old, old Facebook post from Mike Newton, who was a guest on the podcast like in 2014, maybe even earlier than that. He said, is it weird that I'm more excited about making $5 passively than I am about making $5,000 actively. And he's trying to draw this comparison between the the dollars that you quote worked for versus the dollars that somehow just magically appeared without you having to do anything in that moment. And this is from personal experience. Like I know that I value more. I have a harder time spending that dollar that I worked for, like physical labor hours for dollars, whether that was house painting or proofreading or editing or any type of like straight up trade for coaching, consulting, that kind of thing, versus the ones that I earned passively from some digital product sale or affiliate click, even though the dollar is a dollar is a dollar, like it's technically worth the same thing, 
but it's kind of like easy money versus hard money, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And Nick, you pointed out something and I never thought about this before. And I was thinking about when I did a consulting gig. So I helped a company start their podcast and that money that I got paid for that is still sitting in the account. I have not touched it much at all. And I hadn't thought about why until now. And there is something about the fact that this is the money that I earned specifically for this endeavor that I took on. So I need to leave that there and not spend it on foolishness. So it has sat in that account. And I mean, the interest has been paltry on the account that it's been sitting in, but I I hadn't thought about the fact that because I worked, I spent so much time working on that project and really putting my foot in on it that I just want that money to sit there. And I think twice about spending out of that account. The other thing is I noticed the excitement when I get a email about an affiliate commission, because we do promote a few folks, products, services, things like that. The level of excitement, and it's, it's happened a couple of times this week, and it leads me to believe that $5 of money that I did not have to work hard for, there is a different level of excitement that I experienced with that, where I've literally yelled, I've literally yelled, boom. And my girlfriend's like, wait, well, what happened? What, what happened? What happened? And I'm like, yo, we just got this affiliate. And she's just like, I don't really care. That's nice. Well, I take that back. She does care, but the level of excitement is just like, yeah, isn't that part of your business? And I'm like, I know, but there's something about the fact that I- <laughs> and, it, and it worked. Yeah. 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 I woke up and this money was in my account and I didn't have to spend hours to generate it. Yeah. Never mind. Of course, the hours and <laughs> hours and hours of unpaid labor to build it to the point where anybody was paying attention to you so they could even click on your link. But it's totally, I'm with you hundred percent because yeah, you get those notifications or you run those affiliate reports. I had it bad enough back in the day when I was running my shoe business during Q4 and like, especially Cyber Monday, like I remember hitting refresh on the reports like every hour because they would only update once an hour. If they updated more frequently, it would have been more frequent, but it's just like, oh, what did I sell last hour? What did I sell last hour? And it was like, probably not the greatest use of my time, but it is, there's something really exciting about that. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that, man. There's a tendency to chase that easy money and maybe affiliate marketing is is probably guilty of this as well. Like, hey, quote, passive income and it's, you can be very difficult to ever reach that point. And there's a lot of, like we talked about, the labor to get there where the hard money, the money that you work for directly is oftentimes the easier way to get started, even if it doesn't seem like that. Yeah. The consulting dollars were very direct. And I say that in the context of the money I worked hard for. So beyond the day gig, the consulting engagement was very direct. Now I was trading time for money in that case, but I also learned a lot from that engagement that I can then flip into maybe not so much time for money, but more into a a product or some type of digital offering that can be replicated without me having to put hours upon hours upon hours into, well, that's not true because if you create a course, you're probably going to put some, some hours into it. But those early experiences where you do do a bit more trading time for money can lead to a situation where then you create something and you have more of that feeling where you wake up, you log in and you see money in your account without you having to expend as much effort. Yeah. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? 
Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think this is something that probably doesn't get enough airtime, but I think it's really, really important that you spend a portion of your week, it doesn't have to be a huge portion, but a portion of your week thinking about this passive income part, like knowing that not all dollars are equal and knowing that, as Warren Buffett says, if you don't find a way to make money in your sleep, you're going to work until you die, right? It's like, how do you carve out a little sliver of that passive income. Like it's going to take this speculative work up front, doing something that's not getting, you're not getting paid for at all, but hopefully down the road can be a little bit more time leveraged than, than the day job. I think that's something that is worth thinking about, spending some time on and figuring out what that might look like in your life. So those were the first three unconventional money rules that we have. Sometimes your day job is the best side hustle. Sometimes the perks and benefits are worth more than the salary. And number three, not all dollars are equal. The next couple that we have are related to housing, related to where you live. And number four on this list is that buying isn't always better than renting. And I don't know about your household, how it was growing up, but for us, it was like, why would you rent when you can buy? Like that was the mentality. And even the neighbors that we had, they were like, oh, they're renters. It was like, well, they're still our neighbors, they're still our friends, but it was kind of a weird, it was a weird thing. And so it's taken, and that actually kind of led us down a huge financial mistake early on in our in our careers. And it's taken a while to kind of embrace that buying isn't always better than renting. What's your take here? Yeah, I think I probably had the opposite experience where growing up, when I was really young, my parents owned a home and we had a tenant downstairs. We then moved out of that home, actually, I think, foreclosed on it. And that's the thing. I didn't realize it at the time, what had actually <laughs> happened. And we ended up renting thereafter and never owned a home again. And I think for me now, I'm very much of the thought that, yeah, buying isn't always the best. And I get people to ask me about that. And they're like, well, you're in personal finance. How are you not buying a home? I'm like, do you know where I live? I live somewhere where it says homes on a budget, low millions. That doesn't make sense to me from an investment perspective right now. And then even just thinking about the process of, of having to take out the mortgage and all of the upfront work that needs to be done. And I, and I know that I can get a property manager that doesn't fit my lifestyle right now. I have so much other stuff going on that I would much rather rent, have this flexibility to be able to move around, even if I have to break a lease or something like that, versus have to deal with all of the headaches that come with owning a home. So yeah, I like renting. And I, I think that's a, I saw something recently that said that that's a really big deal for the millennial generation, where I think it's like the first generation where it prioritizes renting over buying or something like that. Yeah, there's all, I mean, you see it in the gig economy or the sharing economy, this ownership versus access debate. And it's like this flexibility where you don't need to in the Bay Area somehow come up with a quarter million dollar down payment. And even after you do that, you're still paying more than you would every month. It's like, this doesn't pencil out. There's a cool uh, calculator on the New York Times and it's several years old now, but it's got like all of these kind of sliders where you can punch in the proposed purchase price and the rent and your down payment and your estimates at appreciation. And it'll tell you like, you're going to have a 20 year break even window <laughs> if you plan to buy versus rent. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to busy sticking around here for, for the next 20 years. So I definitely like the flexibility of it. And on top of that, as some of the real estate guests have proposed, is like, if you do buy something, make sure that worst case scenario, you can turn out 
and at least break even on a monthly rent basis and hopefully cash flow it on a monthly basis. And so we see some of the properties around us where your monthly payment principal and interest and property taxes would be maybe six, $7,000. Whereas the rent you would be able to get for that place, maybe 3,500. And it's like, even if you paid it off, even if you paid cash, maybe you're clearing 2,500 after property taxes and expenses and maintenance and all this stuff. And it's like, that doesn't pencil out to be a tremendous cash on cash return. I've got to believe there are uh, better uses for that opportunity cost of that huge down payment. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important. And we hear this all the time in the finance world that personal finance is indeed personal. And I think as you've proven through this show in a lot of ways, there are a lot of opportunities to generate additional income, real estate, buying a home. That is just one of them. And there's also, and I'm not sure if past real estate guests have talked about this, that it might not make sense to buy a home just to live in it, but versus buying a home strictly for real estate purposes to have someone live in it, which is a, a bit of a different conversation. But if this isn't something that really appeals to you, despite the fact you hear what the experts are saying, then don't feel pressure to have to do all of this additional research. And this is what everyone else is doing. And this is what all of my peers are doing. You've got to do what's right for you. And if you know that there's another way that you can make this money on the side, you can generate this passive income and it's not going to put the level of stress on you that real estate might, if that's something that stresses you out, then maybe it's not for you right now. Yeah. And I would say that we are somewhat jaded by this because we bought a townhouse here in Livermore in 2007 for half a million dollars, which we thought, hey, it used to be 550. So we're doing okay. You know, it could be worse. Within 18 months of that, it was worth 200. It was just this huge burden of debt and regret. And meanwhile, all our friends are uh, buying houses for half price, like actual houses, not townhouses. And they're complaining about how crazy the market is and how it's like, we, we couldn't even like be in the same room when anybody brought up like real estate related stuff. It's like, you guys have no idea right now. Eventually that ended up being a short sale, which was, it was freeing in a way to get rid of that huge burden of being underwater. And this was like frustrating for us because we had like done everything right. We had saved for a down payment. We did what you were supposed to do. The American dream, you know, owning a home. And it just turned into a nightmare for us. The other element to this home ownership thing that I think is worth addressing, especially in the context of a side hustle, is your free time. Like your, how do you want to spend your weekends? Do you want to spend your weekends doing home improvement projects, fixing stuff around the house, maintaining your yard? Because that's what we see our friends doing a lot of the time. And for my wife, she's out shooting weddings when weddings were happening. We are at the park with our kids. We have this time where we don't feel compelled and we don't have the really ability to make home improvement, but it's not our property. Like why would we be spending our time and money on that? And that's something else that is probably a factor, especially if you're into kind of an older home where you're like, that would be in in the need or the quote need of some cosmetic upgrades. You're like, okay, that is another time and expense burden to consider. So that's unconventional rule number four. Buying doesn't always make sense compared to renting. Check out the New York Times calculator because it's very location dependent and also just kind of lifestyle dependent on how you want to be spending your time and that, and that down payment cash. Unconventional rule number five, this is a really similar one actually, the so-called quote best financial decision might not be the right one for you. And we'll continue the, the home buying example is a, a, one of the common debates in the personal finance spaces. Should I pay off my mortgage or should I invest that cash instead? And I love the idea of being debt-free. I think that is a really exciting thing. Like if I can erase this mortgage payment, that's a huge boost to my uh, monthly budget now that I don't have going out the door to this bank. And over the course of 30 years, like how much am I going to be saving in interest? That's really exciting. And then the other side of the equation is, well, your mortgage is only at 3%, maybe three and a half percent. Like you could probably do a better return. Like it's not an efficient use use of your cash to go down that path. So the corollary was actually from budgetsaresexy.com. And he was like, you know, there's no right answer. Like Rich said, personal finance is personal. The best one in Budgets Are Sexy's take was to do the thing that excites you. And if that's paying down your mortgage, 
have at it. I love this because it made me reflect for a moment and I was kind of torn. I thought about when I paid off my car two years early, a couple of years ago, and it was at a pretty low interest rate. And I had folks ask about that or like, well, couldn't you have just taken that extra money or couldn't you have ultimately invested it versus paying off the car if it wasn't that big of an expense? But freedom is one of my top values in life. And that having to make a payment and having to see that 300 plus bucks go out of my account every month, that bothered me more. And I felt like I had to get out of debt. I just wanted to be out of debt, period. I wanted to be 100% debt free, especially since I host a podcast that covers personal finance. And so for me, just for like a personal motivational standpoint, it made more sense for me to pay off the car early, even if it was more in the short term, but I don't have to think about that now. And it's been nice to be able to redirect that money over the course of, of the month since then. And I think part of what I also knew, and I don't encourage people to bet on future income, but I knew that I had a performance bonus coming from the day gig at the end of the year. I, I knew that I had some other things that were coming in so I would be able to recoup some of that money in a shorter amount of time. So this may be a counterpoint to the first thing about your day job being uh, the best side hustle, but it's like, if that's not what excites you, if picking up extra shifts is not exciting to you, you know, you have to go down the path of like, Hey, I want to spend my free time working on this business. That's what's exciting me, mate. Even if it's not the quote, best financial decision. The other point that I have here, the other example that I have here is I've become over the last maybe five years, a dividend investor. And where this has helped me is I am the person who always thinks the market is going to crash. Like, I don't know why, I don't know where this like pessimistic streak came from, but it's like, ah, we're due, we're due for a correction. I don't want to, I don't want to get in, but building up this cash flow portfolio, investing for the dividends rather than the share price appreciation. Like I would consider share price appreciation, just gravy. Like, okay, I want to obviously buy companies that have a track record of paying and increasing their dividends year after year, decade after decade, which oftentimes has led to buying like kind of boring old companies that are not likely to 10x their stock price. And that's totally okay. The counterpoint that I've gotten to this strategy is like, Nick, you're you're a relatively young guy. You have income from your business, from your wife's work. Like you don't need this dividend income. In fact, it's not super tax efficient. You could just be investing for the sake of growth, like just pick a growth fund or growth ETF and go to town. But I had to go back to this budgets are sexy article, like, no, do the thing that excites you. So this helped me get off the sidelines and actually start putting some money into the market. And it's been super exciting to kind of watch that kind of trickle up. Even after some of these shares that I've owned now for years, it's been long enough that they've actually increased that dividend over time. It's like, this is, this is quote free money. You know, this is like compound growth and all this fun stuff. So I don't know. That's been, that's been fun for me. And there's one other thing that I would throw in on this because there's a lot of talk about investing right now with all of the apps, all of the services that are out there. There's what the talking heads are saying. And I, and a few months ago when the pandemic started, I remember seeing these, all right, now's the time to buy toilet paper stocks. Now's the time to get in on zoom. Now's the time to buy this. And I saw a lot of people just kind of making investing decisions without really doing research, kind of just going off of what they were seeing on the internet. So I encourage people, even if it is somebody that you trust, hopefully like us, you want to do your own research and make sure that one, it makes sense for you and that you're doing it for you versus kind of the comparison game. And you're doing it because that's what you see everybody else doing. Yeah, this would be a good time for disclosure that none of what we're saying is financial or investment advice. Don't sue us. Indeed. But yeah, there's there's always going to be a calculator to plug in, an interest rate, exponent, future value calculation, but it comes down to what's going to be right for you. And I think that and and personally I like I've gotten caught up in like, well, what does the math say? Like what is the best what's the best decision? And there's not always a clear-cut right answer, if, especially if if the numbers say something, it's like, you know, flip a, flip a coin. And if you're disappointed in the outcome, it's like, well, then your gut is telling you to do the other thing. But that is unconventional rule. Number five for us is the quote, best financial decision might not be the right one for you. The next couple we have are related to 
lifestyle. And number six on our list today is that luxury doesn't have to be expensive. And what I mean by that is for basically my whole life growing up, I was conditioned to think of luxury as certain brands, as a fancy hotel, as stainless steel appliances, granite countertops. And I've kind of learned since then that luxury doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, there was a quote from Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss that really stood out to me, where he said, luxury to me is feeling unrushed. And in a time where everything felt really crazy with rushing off to work and getting the kids to preschool and just just to breathe, luxury to me is feeling unrushed. That really stood out to me. Yeah, I'm someone who loves peace and I love to move at my own pace. And I will say to me, luxury is some of the things that you describe, like the the granite countertops, the stainless steel. I do like nice things. I will fully disclose that. I do like nice things. I like nice brands, but I am also responsible and thoughtful about how I indulge in said brands. But I think about my life and if I can do something that will save me time, that that time can then translate to me spending it in such a way that I'm enjoying life more or it's allowing me to generate revenue in a different way then that may be worth it. And I'll give the example. I paid more in rent to live in an apartment community with newer appliances in a newer building because I didn't want to deal with some of the previous headaches that I experienced when I lived in older buildings and things breaking and not working. It is a managed complex. And yeah, I could have rented from a landlord directly, but then having to call them and wait for things to get fixed. I just had some really bad experiences in the past. So for me, I know that if something happens where I live, I go into a portal, I submit a ticket, and it is fixed within 24 hours. I pay a little bit more to live closer to my day job, which now it probably makes a little less sense since I'm not commuting. (laughs) But I went from a 40-minute commute to a 10-minute commute. And I did the math on this before. And that move ended up saving me 20 hours per month, which was 20 more hours that I could spend on my business. I mean, yeah, I mean, just, just think about that. Oh, that's huge. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's spending more in the short term, but what I'm getting back in terms of mental space and in terms of time that might far outweigh the, the, the cost and yeah, luxury, it's, it's not a bad thing. And I know it gets these different connotations because it's more money, but sometimes we need some of that in our life. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic calculation of like, here's how much I, I'm spending more to live closer. But yeah, it's saving me 20 hours a week is you can actually do the math on what that is worth and the wear and tear on your car and your sanity and not spending that time on the road in the traffic. That sounds like a, a worthwhile trade off there. Do you have any luxury on a budget examples <laughs> that maybe something that you could have spent more on, but you were happy with the budget variety? Something that I could have spent more on, I think for me, because I'm a gadget fiend, I'd actually say clothes. And I've seen the difference in this and it's something that I have evolved a bit on, but I'm not big flashy in terms of having all of the brands in terms of clothing. But from a quality perspective, <laughs> I have had some, some jeans where I'm like, why are these ripping so soon? And, and why are these things falling apart? And I'm like, yeah, this probably isn't the uh, highest quality level. And that's an area where I'm kind of, I'm starting to think about it more just from a longevity standpoint it would make more sense to spend a little bit more money upfront if this is going to last me longer. And just real quick, I think on the budget friendly side of it in a different way, I do like to set aside money for a splurge purchase. And I was telling you beforehand that I brought this at home podcast station. They're not getting the free publicity here, but I've got this at home station that was relatively expensive, but it's something I had been thinking about for a while and I already knew how I was going to fund it. And so kind of having some of that money set aside in what I call my play account, it didn't feel like kind of a, you know what, I'm just going to splurge today. And then boom, now my account is down hundreds of dollars. It was already something that I had accounted for. Yeah. I like that. (laughs) You're just waiting for the sponsorship check to come through on that. I try to think of this luxury on a budget for us too. We do a lot of credit card rewards for travel hacking. So Oftentimes we're able to stay in nicer places for free or for subsidized. And so that's one way around it. Any favorite splurges where it was, it was expensive, but it was totally worthwhile. 
Oh man. So you mentioned travel and I hadn't thought so much about the travel hacking, but I have accumulated a number of points on my card that is travel friendly. And actually it probably ties to the uh, next point that, that we're going to talk about, but going to Cabo, I've been to Cabo a couple of years in a row now. I've also done a couple of years. Well, prior to this situation, I'd done a couple of years where I took a solo trip to Hawaii and I go there, I lay out, I stay in a nice place. I eat what I want. That experience of just being somewhere else, the weather is nice and being at peace and enjoying life and enjoying some of the things that I've worked hard to obtain and to be able to do, like that is freedom to me. So that's probably the thing where I've spent a lot is on travel and on food. I mean, I'm a, I'm a foodie through and through. During hashtag these times, I have had to scale back on how much I'm taking advantage of services like DoorDash because it was, it was getting a little out of control for a minute. Yeah, the the quarantine fifteen. I mean, we're used to having all these meals catered at work. It's all of a sudden like, wow, what am I going to do for food nowadays? We stayed at this place up at Lake Tahoe. This was actually part of a, a FinCon unofficial hangout, and it was this insane house. I found it on Airbnb, and it rented for like four thousand dollars a night, and it had. I mean, it slept twenty five, twenty six people or something. So divided by that many, it was not a huge deal. But it was like, man, this was completely over the top, every amenity you could ever imagine in, in a house. And it's thinking like, it's cool, but it's more about the people who are there. And it's got me kind of thinking about like, luxury is, it doesn't have to be a brand. It doesn't have to be this, this image that you have in your head. It'd just be like hanging out with friends in the backyard or, you know, going on a, going on a walk with your wife. Like, I don't know. There's something to that. And that goes to this point on lifestyle. Number seven on our list why don't you tee this one up? Yeah. So related to the previous, free is good, but convenience is better. I did have a specific example in mind for this one. So there's a service out there called Digit. Have you, have you talked about it before on the podcast? I don't know much about Digit. Okay. So Digit, it's essentially an app with AI capabilities. You connect it to your bank account. It'll analyze your spending and it'll find opportunities to save you a few dollars here and there that then get pulled into this separate digit account. And it is particularly helpful for people who, if they see money in their account, they spend it. And I have been that person in the past. And what I found while using the service was that over time, I wouldn't even notice that that money was missing. So if there were days I didn't spend, I'd already been used to spending money on those days and digit would know and then move that money that i would have spent that day just based off of the AI into this separate account. And I've had multiple points where I completely forgot that that account was there. And then I go and look and there's $500 in it, $600 in it. I think at, at one point I had $2,000 in it and that was saving me money without me having to think about it. Cause that wasn't like in the checking account, like, Oh, look, I could go buy whatever. So just, it's like out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. Exactly. And it was free for a while and they implemented a $2.99 fee and people went nuts. They went nuts about that fee. And, you know, I did the math on it. And I'm like, well, if it saves you a hundred dollars that you wouldn't have saved before, and it's a, it's a two ninety nine fee, you still have like $97. <laughs> you're, you're still better off. Yeah. You're, you're still better off. And, and I think uh, even with using some of the other services out there, we're like, yeah, it's free, but sometime it's worth it to spend the few dollars to ultimately get that extra peace of mind or that extra bit of quality. And I always say you you get what you pay for. And it's something that I'm experiencing even now where it's not free. I'm using Fiverr for a project versus the experience I had working with a designer a couple of weeks ago and how much of a relationship it was versus a transaction. And I'm seeing that difference where it's like, you know, I probably should have just paid more to work with the designer that I worked with previously versus leveraging this service because I'm finding that I'm having to put a lot more time and effort into it than if I had just spent a little bit more upfront. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash, it's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. 
Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, I I'm probably would have been one of these people freaking out over this $2.99 fee, especially years ago, where, and especially in the early days of Side Hustle Nation, the mentality was like, I could do it myself. There's got to be a free alternative. There's got to be a cheaper way to do this. And that was probably to the detriment of the uh, growth of the site. Like I was very, very tight. Is it tight fisted? Is that the right word? Where it's like, didn't want to spend any money and actually had a draft post in WordPress where it was like, how my cheapness cost me thousands. And it was just going to be this laundry list of like, why did I wait so long to buy this software? Why did I wait so long to buy this course that ended up shortcutting my learning curve on SEO or whatever other topic? And it's like all of this stuff where I'm all for savings, frugality, bootstrapping, like do it smart, do it intentionally. There is always a cheaper way to figure this stuff out. But at a certain point, and I would be trying to work around in this clunky software, trying to build some pop-up or I, like, it was just like, how many hours did I spend on this? Where it's like, oh, for 30 bucks a month or whatever it was for lead pages at the time, it was like, oh, okay, I can go on to do the rest of the work that I need to do rather than this kind of ancillary administrative type of task. Oh, I love that, man. You brought back so many memories of strife and struggle because I think a lot of us who have been thrifty and tight-fisted when we're getting our business off the ground, we've dabbled in creating our own websites. And I think about the hours that I've spent trying to move something over a few pixels. Yes, guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, or trying to get a banner to size the right way. And yeah, it might have cost me an hour of someone's time. And that's the thing. What would take me two hours to do, somebody could probably do in like 30 minutes or even less than that, if it's an area of expertise for them. So, so you got, so you got, you got to run that analysis again of like the amount of time you're spending on it versus the amount of time you would get back if you were just willing to make that investment. So this one definitely hit me in the chest. Yeah. This one is, is something that maybe you have to learn over time. I don't know. And it's really hard. I understand it's really hard to justify any sort of extra expenditure until you have the revenue to justify it. And that was always kind of the point where I was like, if I couldn't see the ROI on that, like, and I wasn't great at calculating my own estimated hourly rate or effective hourly rate, it was hard to part with that money. It's like, okay, even this was from somebody who understood the math, of like, okay, your time is worth 50 bucks an hour. So why are you doing this $10 an hour task? Well, because it's not always a direct trade where it's going to take some time to find this person and vet them and explain the task and, and do all this stuff. I, I don't know, definitely had a hard time. But I like this free is good, but convenience is better. We've definitely been uh, pushing the convenience button quite a bit during quarantine times with Amazon Prime and just stuff that, you know, we used to go to the store for. And now it just shows up at our house, delivery services, Target, Costco. It's hard to imagine going back the other way. Or it's, it's just you can kind of see this is nice. Like, you know, I don't have the half hour in the car back and forth and worrying about what the kids are touching in the store and all sorts of stuff. So I like that one. Free is good, but convenient is better. Let's talk about cars. So you mentioned paying off the car a minute ago. I've got a couple car-related ones because this is a, a sticking point for me. And this is a another one that is a very popular topic in personal finance circles. Number eight, the eighth unconventional money rule that you have is one that I came up with. If you have a car payment, you bought too much car. Maybe I should corollary that. If you have a car payment at more than 0% interest, you bought too much car. Don't finance a depreciating asset. Yeah, this car one is tricky because I, I think for a lot of us, we just expect that that's what you do. You buy a car, you have a car note, you pay it off in five years. Or what I'm seeing more commonly now, which is quite disconcerting, is people who are stretching these notes out to seven years and paying it off over seven years. And I will say what I did is I, I did get one of those notes, but I knew that I was going to pay it off well in advance. 
And so there was a very strategic element to it. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take this lower payment because I know in, in the coming future, I'm going to be able to pay this off in advance. But yeah. And e- even with debt, I think about my experience growing up is my parents carried debt. I would see them sit at the kitchen table and make minimum credit card payments. So what did I do when I got a credit card? I accumulated debt. I made minimum payments. So I would have money to do other things. And accumulated probably thousands of dollars in interest over the years. This resonates with me probably a little bit in a different way because even when I got my car, I had an interest rate on it. But in the future, and I have started a bank account for this, in the future, if I get a car, I will not get a new car until I can buy it for cash. I've just committed to that. I don't want a car note. That is not, I don't want any debt (laughs) at, at this point in my life or in the near future so I'll be riding around in this whip for at least a few more years at this point. This was a tough one for me post quitting my job because I worked for Ford and had a company car and it was cool because it would like rotate every three or six months. They'd say like, hey, your new car is here and you could order it, you custom everything. Here's what you want ordered in the system. And then it magically like shows up at the office one day and it's like, it's like Christmas, like here's your new car. And quitting that job and realizing like, that's not how the real world works is like, oh, I'm going to drive. And I made myself the rule. Like I bought a used car with 50,000 miles on it. I'm not going to be able to get a new one until a hundred thousand miles. That was like the rule that I set for myself. And I kept it till it had 140, 145 before eventually selling it. It's like the newness wears off and the kind of the thrill of, you know, turning the ignition or sitting in an, in a new car kind of wears off, at least for me pretty quickly. So this was one there was, I'm trying to think of another car-related one. I was actually surprised by this in uh, Ramit's book, I Would Think You To Be Rich. He talks about negotiating ruthlessly for housing, for cars, like these big expenses that can make a meaningful impact on your budget. Like he's very big, like personal finance people say to skip the latte and you'll be a millionaire. It's like, forget it. Pay attention to the big stuff. And he's like, negotiate like crazy on this car but he's still talking about buying a new car. Like I've never had a new car. So I thought that was kind of a, a surprising one. The next car related one that we have on unconventional money rules here is the price of your car shouldn't be more than your monthly income. So if you make 10 grand a month, you should buy a $10,000 car, nothing more. What's your take on that? That's an interesting take, man. I don't disagree with it. I've never thought about it that way before. What's the further thinking behind that one? And the further thinking is like, it just, I don't know, unless you're using your car for work or you're using this to impress clients in some way, like it's just transportation. Like it's just, it doesn't matter. I think you can get a perfectly safe and reliable vehicle way less than the price of a new car. Let somebody else have the steepest part of that depreciation curve. There was, when we were growing up at one point, we saw this like Corvette zoom through our neighborhood. And my dad was like, oh, that's a, that's a fast car. And it's like, yeah, it looks like a fast car. But then I kind of, I don't know, snarky eight-year-old Nick was like, but doesn't everybody have to follow the speed limit anyways? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> just takes down like all of these like Corvette drivers. It's just sad. But yeah, it's like, we all kind of have, there's a limit to how fast you can go. And maybe the Corvette is going to get zero to 60, obviously faster than my ride. But it was hard to justify even from an early age. Like, yeah, I get that that, is a nice car. I get that that's an expensive car, but it just didn't seem practical. I don't know. That's me being a wet blanket on uh, the automotive industry. I totally get it. I think for me, and it's funny, you actually got me to do the calculation in my head. I was like, well, how much is my income? And I'm like, oh, how much car would that get me? And I'm like, that wouldn't be a very nice car. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's with me being in a good financial situation. But I do like that prompt, though, as something to think about, even if I can't get to it being the same amount as my monthly income. And maybe uh, one day if I'm generating enough from the affiliates and from the podcasting and from from everything else that I'm doing, that it is a much more luxurious vehicle. But I like the idea of of keeping that in mind kind of as a as a goalpost. So when it does come time to get a new version of Infinity Jones and I did buy that car used. Oh, I'm happy to hear that at least. Yes, yes. Yeah, I don't I don't believe in buying new either. But when it does come time to get a new car, that is a different way for me to think about it, even if I do go above what I'm making in my monthly income, but to try to bring it as close to that number as possible. So I do like that one and it is very unconventional. 
Yeah, just just a little bit of a guideline because you see people out there on you know maybe a sixty thousand dollar salary and they bring home a Tesla and you're like, cool, but like that's got to eat up a big chunk of your income. I don't know because people don't think about the price; they think about the payment. And it's like, okay, yeah, like you said, we're going to stretch this payment out for seven years. It's like, okay, that's affordable. I can fit that in my budget. But it's like, dude, how much are you paying for this thing? What's it going to be worth at the end of that time? And Teslas hold their value really well because I've, I've looked. We actually test drove one a few years ago. You're like, this is an incredible piece of engineering. I can see why people want these cars. It's amazing. But at the same time, it would just be really hard for me to justify that. Like I don't have a commute. Like I don't spend that much on gas. Like, I don't know. It would be tough. So those are the ones we have related to cars. Bring it home for us with number 10 here. Yes. Saving won't make you wealthy. And some people might find this controversial, but part of what I'm talking about here is not so much having money in a savings account, but one thing to also consider, and I think we were talking about this beforehand, is even where interest rates are right now. So just tucking everything away into a high yield savings account doesn't mean, doesn't mean what it meant years ago. Shout out to ING Direct when they had that interest account that earned you like four or five percent. Those were the days. Also when gas was like one ninety nine. Yeah, buddy. I was an ING customer from the early days. Oh, yes. Those were such good times. But even, for example, you weren't planning to buy something. And let's say you're on Amazon. You see that it's it was previously $500 and now you see it's down to $450 and, you're, and it's a limited time sale. And I don't discourage people from buying things that were already on the list and they see it go down in price because that's what we do with cars. That's what we do in a lot of aspects of life. And I don't discourage people from a good deal. But if it wasn't something you were planning to buy and you bought it just to save a few dollars because it says that it's on sale. You didn't save $50. You still spent $500 or $450. Yeah. And kind of nickel and diming and, and couponing. And you referenced the lattes earlier. Yeah. Cutting lattes. Like, yeah, that, that'll save you a, a few dollars here and there. But that's not what's going to generate wealth. To me, what's going to generate you wealth is, is the additional income that you're able to build whether that's through your side hustle, active, passive investing, these other avenues, that's where you really build the wealth, not saving a few dollars here and there or making your life extremely inconvenient in, in, in some ways just to save a, a few dollars. Yeah, the links that we maybe used to go and some people go to in, in the name of frugality is like, what is that really saving you in the long run in terms of your time and your sanity and all that stuff? This one is is a tough one for me, and this was actually the inspiration for for this entire episode, was this idea that every dollar is meaningless, right? Like you add a dollar to your bank account, great. It means nothing. But for me, the habit of saving that is everything. And so it's this weird paradox that I remember one of the trainings in the painting business where the guy got up in the front of the room and he held up all these different fake painting tools and then he's like, okay, write this down. You know, this is all the stuff you're going to need. And then he's like, turns out all this stuff is fake. You don't need any of that. Mind the nickels and dimes and the dollars take care of themselves. And I was like, okay, you know, that, that makes sense. That kind of goes to this. Each dollar is meaningless, but the habit of saving it is everything. And it, it's counter to don't sweat the small stuff. Buy the latte, go out to dinner, tip well, have fun. It, I don't know. There's, there's a balance in between there. Yeah, I agree on that because there are times where let's say you do realize that you're spending, I don't know, 300 bucks a month in lattes. That's probably a whole other conversation. Or you're spending, I don't know, $10 a day on something over the course of a month and you realize you've spent 300 bucks. Yeah, it seems small and this may sound counter to what I just said, but hey, if that's going to put $300 back in your pocket for you, for you to then do something with. <laughs> I think that that's a, a little bit different and, and it kind of goes back to the point of really knowing yourself and, and knowing what's important to you. But for example, some people, they save money by, you know, not having cable. And for me, I watch pro wrestling. I don't like spoilers. And I, and for a while I didn't have, I eventually started using YouTube TV, but for a while I tried to just do watch it the next day and every show was getting spoiled for me. <laughs> Actually, all my shows were getting spoiled. So so it got to a point where there were some things where I'm like, you know what? I want to be able to watch this live. 
I was saving an additional 50, 50 bucks a month, but I am willing to spin that just because of the enjoyment and how important it is for me to see grown men in tights fight to a predetermined conclusion. <laughs> there you go. As long as you're aware that that predetermined conclusion, this is an interesting one because like the idea of saving won't make you wealthy because there is a limit to how much you can save where yeah, I think I understand your argument was like where the income potential is limitless, right? And it's like, yeah, you're still going to need a roof over your head. You're still going to need to feed you yourself and your family. And so there's only so much that you can cut and it doesn't make sense necessarily to even like obviously spend intentionally, but don't worry yourself sick over this stuff. Instead, focus on the revenue side of the equation. One example I do want to share on the budgeting side, the saving side actually comes from my mother-in-law. And this was, I had the Alexa money-making minute and she gave me one of her, like, I was like, what kind of money advice would you have if you had to give somebody some advice? And she's like, what I did, which I think was counter to what a lot of people do was she knew her monthly expenses. Like this is exactly what I spend every month. And she would have that amount deposited from her paycheck into checking account and everything else went into savings and investments. And she could draw that if she had an unexpected expense or emergency. And what I've always done is like, that's my paycheck. Like that goes straight into checking. Like there was, and then if I have a surplus at some point, I'll transfer some over to savings. She worked it the complete opposite way. Yeah. I like that methodology for it. I think there does come a point with the saving part where, you know, so let's say that you have a year of cash in the bank. Fantastic. Do you need to have two years that are sitting in that savings account that's immediately liquid? Or after you get to a certain threshold that you decide that you're then going to start doing more by way of investing, which is what I've been thinking a lot about lately is that I'm, I'm in a pretty good spot with my savings account. I have an emergency fund and as money is coming in now, I'm saying, okay, let me put this into one of my taxable investing accounts and, and let this work for me. Even though I know, of course, there's you know tax implications and, and so on. I would say, though, while saving won't make you wealthy, if you do not have an emergency fund, I would encourage you to prioritize getting it at least a month in there to start. I know some folks say it's a thousand dollars, but a month of expenses. And I think a lot of people, at least particularly over these last few months who kind of got caught with their pants down are are seeing the importance of at least saving enough to have an emergency fund to to get you through a few weeks versus the stress of holy crap I've got 500 in my account now I have to now I have to get a credit card now I have to take out loans and I'm finding myself in this much more stressful situation so I do think a lot of people will come away from this better but if, if it's something that you have not thought about yet you do want to start sa- saving in the sense that you want to have this emergency fund in case something does happen yeah, at a, at a bare minimum, I would make that a top priority. Make sure that you got, you know, me being, as you found out, the pessimistic, conservative investor type of person where it's like, yeah, a month, like a month is going to go by pretty fast. Like I want several months in that emergency account, but that makes a lot of sense. So save to the point that, and if you have to scrimp and be frugal during that time to build up that buffer, you just want a little bit of financial breathing room. Just imagine the weight that would be off your shoulders if if you had that, I think that's a, a good place to start. So Rich, what's going on? What are you working on these days? What's new in Paychecks and Balances world? Yeah. So uh, the podcast was off for a little bit of a break, a little bit of a summer relaxation. So getting ready to go on the uh, fall season and also thinking about the uh, winter season as well. I uh, have also been working on a couple of course related things in the background. So Everything that's happening with Paychecks and Balances, uh, you can find it at paychecksandbalances.com. And we're also uh, pretty active on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well at PayBalances. So big things, continuing to produce content, continuing to refine, and continuing to look for more opportunities to help people achieve the freedom they want. Well, very good. I very much appreciate you joining me. Again, paychecksandbalances.com. You can check Rich out over there. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Do what works for you. I say that based off of where I am now. And uh, Nick, we were talking up front about sponsorships and how we generate income for the business. And I'm trying to move away from trading time for money, just given how much that I have going on in my life. And I know that there are some revenue streams that may seem obvious and they're quick wins, but sometimes 
those things can take a toll on you mentally or emotionally. So I'm focused much more on uh, setting up a business and lifestyle that fits the ultimate vision that I have for myself and how I spend my time versus comparing it against what other people are doing. So do what works for you. I like that one. Do what works for you. Very good advice from Mr. Rich Jones. Once again, paychecksandbalances.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.